So let's continue in our study of Matthew's Gospel by turning in our Bibles to the ninth chapter, beginning at verse 27. Let's briefly pray before we read. Almighty God and Father, the man whom you have called to preach the word in this congregation this morning asks for the power of the Holy Spirit. Jeff and I, as we minister to this flock, cannot do so without the power of the Spirit of God. And so enable this servant to do battle with the evil one and with his evil kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ may be established in many a heart today. Uh, Help me to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to place upon my head that helmet of salvation, and while I am dressed with the breastplate of righteousness, that imputed righteousness of Christ, I would ask, Heavenly Father, that battle might now be done, and that the Spirit of God will go before, and that the divine warrior will conquer many a heart. We ask these things in the name of Christ, who promised that this word is his word and will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose to which he sends it. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning with verse 27. This is the word of God. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. The authority of Jesus has been the theme that we have been seeing all the way through the Sermon on the Mount in his teaching and all the way through these accounts of miracles in these chapters that we've been looking at lately. Each miracle tells us more about Jesus. Each miracle gives to us an angle on Jesus' person and work. You will remember the purpose of the miracles of Jesus. They are signs that the kingdom has arrived in Jesus. He has come to recreate. He has come to restore. The consummation that is to come has already broken into time and space in his person. Uh, Jesus came to remove uncleanness. Many of the miracles, as we've seen, deal with ceremonial uncleanness, pointing ultimately to the fact that in his cross, he will deal with the uncleanness of our hearts. All of the miracles of Jesus point to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is the exercise of resurrection power prior to his resurrection from the dead, again pointing to the ultimate restoration of all things. And all, all of the miracles indicate something of who Jesus is. Tell us something about his person and something about his work. Now, before we look at the two miracles of Jesus that we have read in this text this morning, I want to raise a question that I haven't raised that I know will be in at least the minds of a few people as we move through these miracle narratives. 
And that question is, did the miracles of Jesus really happen? So the very first thing that I want to say in the sermon this morning is, did Jesus perform the miracles attributed to him in the New Testament? Well, of course he did. The Bible is the inerrant word of God, and we Christians believe the miracles because the Bible says that he did these things. You know, our young people go off to college, and it is almost inevitable in most colleges that you will find a professor who will say something like this. You know, you were taught in your Sunday schools to believe in Jesus and to believe that he performed miracles and raised the dead, but I'm here to disabuse you of that idea. That's all wrong, and you have to relearn everything. And the a priori assumption of the professor is there can be no supernatural. And even though it's true that there is more of an openness to the supernatural, there is not more openness to Christian supernaturalism in the schools and universities of our day. Not really. The Christian faith, you see, is supernatural at its core. At its basis is the impregnable rock of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And apart from miracle, the supernatural, there is no Christianity. How essential it is that we understand that Christianity is not a moral philosophy, that Christianity is not there simply to tell us about how to be good, that it is, it is the proclamation of salvation that has come into time and space because of our desperate need of salvation, and God has entered in the person of his Son to save us. That's the Christian message. We need the forgiveness of sins, and only Christ coming into this world could save us. What then is our defense of miracles? Well, I'm just going to say a couple of things that are important here, but I recommend that you read Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen if you never have read that book, in which you will find much more, and that old book is still very, very relevant today. The miracles of Jesus must be taken in connection with the character of Jesus. Machen makes that point in his book, and it's a very important point. For example, It is not probable that a man should rise from the dead. We all know that. But then Jesus was like no other man that ever lived. And so Machen rightly says the uniqueness of the character of Jesus removes the hostile presumption against miracle. That's correct. When Machen himself was a student under the liberals in Germany, he would go and sit under the great liberals, all of whom denied Christian supernaturalism, denied the virgin birth, denied the resurrection, denied that Jesus was God, denied that he had come into the world and performed these miraculous signs. They, they all denied this, and they were very, very persuasive. Machen would go back to his room as a young student, and he would take out the Gospel of Mark, and he would simply read through the Gospel of Mark, and all of the objections of his professors would simply vanish away. Because as he read the Gospel of Mark, there he would find the ring of truth. He would see who Jesus was, and he would say, it is not not possible that what my professors are saying is true. It is only possible that what the New Testament teaches is true. You see, there is historical evidence for the miracles of Jesus. And what I mean by that is that taken with the person of Jesus is also the reliability of the New Testament documents the eyewitnesses that saw the resurrected Christ, and also were with him as he performed these miracles, who were willing to go into the world and suffer untold agony to tell about the miracles of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. In other words, those things were not done in a corner. When God revealed himself, he revealed himself clearly and openly in history, in time, and in space. And we can believe in miracle. When we understand, and this I think is Machen's great point actually in his book, we can believe in miracle when we understand 
that there is an adequate occasion for miracle to enter into the world. And this is the crux. What is the adequate reason for miracle? Well, the reason is the conquest of sin. That's the reason. When we understand our sin, then the place of miracle becomes something obvious because we understand that nothing but the supernatural intervention of God is adequate to meet our sin need. Only a creative act of God can save us, and that is found in the redeeming love of Jesus Christ and in his miraculous intervention in our lives. And so Machen says, No product of sinful humanity could have redeemed humanity from the dreadful guilt or lifted a sinful race from the slew of sin. But a Savior has come from God. There lies the very root of Christianity. There is the reason why the supernatural is the very ground and substance of the Christian faith. Now, without a conviction of sin, there will be no appreciation of the uniqueness of Jesus and no understanding of the occasion for the supernatural intervention of God in this world to save us. No wonder, then, that those who have never known the conviction of sin, those who don't understand that they are lost and undone, those who have never contrasted themselves with the holiness of God, those are the people that reject miracle. And only the Holy Spirit can open a heart to see its need of a Savior. Yes, a miraculous Savior. May I tell you that this was true in my own life. When I was brought up in a Southern Baptist church as a young boy, and I was taken to Sunday school every Sunday, during those Sunday school lessons, the teacher would open the New Testament and would teach the various miracles of Jesus, and I denied them all. I didn't believe a one of them. I was the great skeptic in the class. I really did not believe that Jesus performed those miracles. I remember my teacher calling me up one day because I had disputed that it uh, had actually been, been something that Jesus would have done, read it to me over the phone. I put the phone down and said, it's there, but I still don't believe it. Do you know what changed me? When God showed me that I was a sinner, when God showed me that I needed a Savior, when God showed me that I was desperate before His holiness and I was lost and undone without Jesus Christ, then I no longer had a problem with miracle. I understood and I knew that if I was to be saved from sin, only God intervening in time and space could do it. And God did that for me. And that, I think, is the fundamental issue. And so, young person who may be here, you have no reason to be intimidated when you go off to college or in your high schools or wherever it may be, and someone says, we can't believe in Christian supernaturalism anymore. Remember what Machen said, Without miracles, we should have a teacher. With the miracles, we have a savior. And you don't simply need a good teacher. You need, and I need, a savior from sin. Yes, then, we believe the miracles because they are revealed in the word of God. And because God has opened our heart to see our need of those miracles. And that word alone, which gives us the answer to our desperate question, can answer the question of miracle. How can I be freed from guilt and sin? And with that in mind, we turn to the two miracle narratives that we read this morning. And so the second thing in the sermon is, the blind see. Verse 27, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. You see their need. They were blind. They could not see. Imagine that. Not to see a baby crawl, begin to walk. Not to see a bird singing in a tree, going to the beach and walking on the sand, but seeing no sunset, seeing no beautiful sunrise, not seeing the beauty of someone's face, 
not seeing, not seeing, not seeing, but total darkness. No ophthalmologist could help them. No optometrist could give them sight. No pair of glasses could have helped these two blind men. That's their need. But notice their cry. Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David. Do you remember how Matthew opened in the very first verse of the very first chapter? It opens this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how it opens. And then when we come to the end of Matthew, the crowds will cry, Hosanna to the son of David. In chapter 22, Jesus debates the Pharisees and tells them that the Messiah, based on Psalm 110, is both the son of David and David's Lord. He is David's descendant. He is a man who rules as king, but he also is God in the flesh. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. And so when we read here that they are crying out, Son of David, the blind men are petitioning Jesus in the recognition that he must be the Messiah. Isaiah 11.1, a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Jeremiah 33.15, in those days and at that time I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. Ezekiel 34 I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. This was the promise of the Old Testament, that the Messiah would be of David's line. And so the blind men may not have understood a lot about this, but as someone has said, their need drove them to confession. Their physical eyes were blind, but clearly the Lord is illuminating their hearts, already enlightening them spiritually. They see that Jesus is the Messiah, though they cannot see with their physical eyes. They saw what the Pharisees, with all of their magnificent training in the Scriptures, could not see because they had physical eyes only, but no eyes to see with faith. Matthew's repeated point is that Jesus came to fulfill a mission, and the mission of the Messiah was to bring salvation to the lost, forgiveness of sins, and to establish his kingdom. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Does this encourage you? Uh, Will Jesus not do what he came to do? Will he not fulfill his messianic mission? Does it not encourage you to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those thousands of years of prophecy, that this is who the Messiah was, and this is what he would do? And so note further that these blind men crying out to the son of David cry out also for mercy from the son of David. O son of David, have mercy on us. They cried out for mercy. They did not cry for what they deserved. They did not say we have a right to this. They didn't say, we've had, we've had uh, bad cards dealt to us and we want you to fix it. No, no, they cried out for mercy. And they cried because they believed that Jesus could actually heal them. When true faith is in the soul, a person will pray. When true faith is in the soul, a person will cry out. And this was prayer from the heart indeed. And it leads me, as we think about their faith, to say some things about faith. Look at their faith. 
Uh, In verse uh, 28, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes, Lord, yes, we believe that you are able to do this. According to your faith, be it unto you then, that is in line with your faith, you will have it because you believe in me. Now this leads me to say some things about faith. First, Christ, the object of faith, heals. Christ, the object of faith, heals. Again, it is so important that I stress, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you, but the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. Faith is based on fact, the truthfulness of Jesus, who he is, his self-revelation. And so, faith issues from need, from a deep-felt need. Faith must have an adequate object. It is never abstract. Faith, faith in something, faith in someone. No, it is faith in Jesus, faith in Christ alone. And faith is affected because of the trustworthiness of faith's object, who is Christ. Now, I've been doing a good bit of reading in D.A. Carson lately and uh, came across an illustration that I just have to bring to you because I think it's so important. I want to read it to you, actually. Now, in order to see this illustration, you have to remember the Exodus way back then and when uh, the Lord intended to bring his people out of Egyptian bondage. And you remember that he brought the plagues. You remember the last, the last plague that he brought was the promise that the firstborn, the firstborn son of the Egyptians or any that did not have the blood on the doorposts would die. Now, that's the setting. Now, It is the night of the first Passover. Mr. Smith and Mr. Jones, two Israelites who have observed the succession of plagues that have befallen Egypt and sometimes spilled over into the land of Goshen, where most of the Israelites lived, are having a conversation over the back fence. Mr. Jones confesses his deep worries over the coming night. Of course I'm concerned, shouldn't I be? God has sent waves of plagues. Flies, frogs, darkness, water turning to blood. But this last announcement is frankly terrifying. The loss of the firstborn in every household in Egypt, the nation will be shattered. But haven't you done what Moses said and daubed the side posts and lintel with blood from the Paschal lamb? Of course, I'm an Israelite just like you, but a blood stain or two seems a strangely weak way to stop the ravages of the angel of death. I'm terrified for my son, and I don't know what else I can do to ensure his safety. Mr. Smith sighs. You've done all you need to do, all you can do. You know that I've got a son too, and I'm perfectly confident that he is safe. God has promised through Moses that in the households where the blood has been applied as stipulated, the firstborn male will be safe. Don't you think God will help, will keep his word? Where is your faith? When Mr. Jones replies, he's hesitant and troubled. Please don't give me moralizing sermons about faith. I'm scared. And that's all there is to it. I've sprinkled the blood around just as God said, but I'm frightened for my son and I wish I could do something to guarantee his safety. That night, the angel of death passed through the land. In most houses, there was loud weeping and wailing as the firstborn males died in huge numbers throughout the land. Now, the question is this. Pardon me. Which man, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, lost his firstborn son? 
The answer, of course, is neither. Mr. Smith had great faith. Mr. Jones displayed rather anemic faith. But both had shown enough faith to daub the blood on the doorposts and lintel. Beyond that, the outcome depended utterly on the reliability of the promises of God. Something very similar is portrayed in the Gospels. We do not wrench blessings from Jesus by somehow increasing the intensity of our faith. Granted we have any genuine faith at all, what is far more important is the faithfulness of Jesus. And ironically, when we focus on that, we find our own faith strengthened as we come more greatly to appreciate the one on whom our faith rests. Do you see? Yes, it is a wonderful thing to have great faith. We want great faith, but it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the blood of Christ that faith grips that saves you. And that we see consistently through the Gospels. And so these men had faith, and the blind men saw, verse 30, and their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened. These men took advantage of a great opportunity, did they not? Jesus was near And they must have had help to find him. And they went and they asked that they might see, my faith is weak. My faith is weak, you might say. I don't know that I can take advantage of that opportunity. Don't focus there. All that we've been saying is focus on Christ, the object of your faith. And so imagine, (laughs) imagine these two men from darkness to light. They could not see, now they see. I suppose the very first person they saw was Jesus standing before them, who actually in his compassion had touched them that they might receive their sight. And now they can see everything. One of my sisters in Christ in our congregation told me that when she was a little girl, uh, she was having eye trouble and she went to the doctor and when she was given her eyeglasses, there was a new world. She couldn't believe it. Well, how much more so for these two blind men? that could now see when once they were blind. We also see something about their witness here, don't we? In verse 30, their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. I find it difficult to be harsh on them. (laughs) Yes, we should obey Jesus. And this is so much like us, isn't it? Jesus tells us to do something and we think, well, for his glory, we're going to do it another way. Yeah, it's wrong. But at the same time, I'm so sympathetic. They can see. They, they couldn't see before. It would be very, very difficult for them to go out and say, I, can't see, I can see, and, and once I couldn't. And Jesus, he did this for me. Well, they should have obeyed. Um, they really should have. <laughs> but they bore witness. Now, Second miracle, the mute speaks. It's very brief. As the two formerly blind men were leaving, it seems this man was being brought in, and some have suggested that these two formerly blind men brought him in. They found this mute man and brought him in. If so, the suggestion makes sense, because when we've been found by Jesus, the first thing we want to do is help others to find Jesus, don't we? You remember that? That longing that others come to know Jesus? That shouldn't die in our heart, should it? Well, we see their condition in verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. Well, they could not speak. The word here 
is kophos. Kophos is a word that uh, means mute, but often also it means deaf. It does actually in the next chapter. It means deafness as well as the inability to speak. Often an inability to speak, inability to hear, these two things go together. So probably what we have is someone who could not speak and also kophos, he could not hear either. What a very, very sad condition. And it seems to have been caused by demon possession. Not only the inability of speak, the inability to hear, but demon possession as well. But then we find the healing of this person. We aren't told how. We aren't told how Jesus cast out the demon. Did he say a word? Did he offer a command? Did he touch? Did he say nothing? We aren't told, but he cast out the demon and the dumb man spoke. Now, both of these healings are here primarily to tell us something about who Jesus is. Matthew is leading us along step by step that we understand more and more about who Jesus is. And so the fourth thing I want you to see is Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. Matthew arranges his miracles topically. You can see that by comparing Matthew with Mark and with Luke. He arranges them topically. And the miracles that we have just seen, the raising of the dead that we saw last week, the healing of the blind men, the restoration of the dumb uh, so that he can speak and perhaps remove his deafness, these things are also taken up in chapter 11, the first verses, when John the Baptist is in prison. And John the Baptist is wondering, why am I in prison if the kingdom has come? Uh, is he the one? And so he sends messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one that is the Messiah, or shall we expect another? And you remember that Jesus sends back the answer, look at what you have seen. You have seen the miracles that I've done, that those who could not speak now speak, that the dead have been raised, that the deaf hear. You see these things. The miracles answer John's question. Are you the one? The miracles evidence Jesus' credentials. How then do the miracles evidence who Jesus is? The miracles evidence who Jesus is because, as was read by Pastor McDonald from Isaiah 35 this morning, the Old Testament tells us that this is what the Messiah would do when he came. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. This was the prophecy of the Messiah who would come. These are the credentials of Jesus. And so in that next chapter, Jesus says, go back and tell John what you see and hear. The miracles are Jesus' messianic credentials. They show that he is the one prophesied in the Old Testament prophets. And look at what we have seen when we have seen those miracles, even in chapter 9, 1 through 8, that Jesus can forgive the sins of sinners. Now to us sitting here this morning, these well-attested, established miracles of our Lord tell us who he is. We have the entire Bible to tell us. We have the Old Testament to tell us. It makes plain that the performance of miracles are, among other things, pointers to the Messiah. But there have been others in Matthew's Gospel that are observing Jesus, right? They believe the miracles, but they deny that the source is God. That leads us to our fifth point. 
Jesus divides people. Now look at verses 33 and 34. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel, probably taking into account all of the various miracles of Jesus that they've seen. But look at verse 34. The Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So the crowd sees the miracles and they say, never before in Israel has anything been done like this. Not with Moses, not with Elijah, not with Elisha. This is something remarkable. This is something different. This is something entirely new. But there are others who observe Jesus and they reject him. Do you remember? It is a mark of the Messiah that he be rejected. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But this did not hinder Jesus from his mission. He kept moving toward the cross in order to save us from our sins. And now the Pharisees argue, the Pharisees actually argue that Jesus can control demons because he is a demonic ringleader. And so they dismissed his claims. And this becomes even worse in chapter 12 when they identify Jesus as having a relationship with Beelzebub. You see, if they're wrong, there could only be one conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom has dawned, and they need to bow before his lordship. Why then don't the Pharisees believe? Why do they not believe? The Pharisees did not believe because they were desperate. They so wanted to hold on to their autonomy, they refused to see who Jesus was and even declared him to be in cahoots with demons. The human heart has not changed and sinners will still hold on to their autonomy and deny Jesus until God in his grace intervenes. In John 8, he says to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. That's who you are by nature. And the Pharisees were sworn enemies of Christ. Now, if you are an unbeliever here today, you may say, I'm no enemy of Christ. I'm no enemy of Jesus. But the scriptures tell us differently. The scriptures tell us that until a sinner comes to Christ, he is alienated and hostile to him, just as firmly as were the Pharisees. Thank God that Christ came for enemies, that he came to save his enemies. And the very glory of grace is that though man by nature hates to be saved, yet God will save his people, though they be enemies, and change their hearts in his sovereignty. Man says, I will not, but God says, I will, and that settles it. As Charles Spurgeon said some time ago, Almighty grace rides victoriously over the neck of free will. And he's right. Man says no, but when God says yes, who can stop him? And so there's a division. And the division comes not only because certain people see things that other people don't naturally speaking. The division comes because of grace. Grace brings a division. Why are you different than someone else if you're a believer? Why do you believe in Jesus and someone else doesn't? Why is it that two twins could come here this morning? Same background, same love, same likes, same interests, identical twins, identical in every way. 
one goes away saved, the other goes away lost. Jesus brings a division among people, even in families. His grace brings this divide. And ultimately, there is a division coming on the day of judgment that will be awesome indeed. And there will be no opportunity to believe in Jesus, to believe savingly on Jesus in that day, though everyone will acknowledge his lordship. Now, as we conclude, having looked at these two very simple miracles, what a picture of man's need is here, don't you think? Uh, These men that couldn't see, these men that were in darkness, you know, we by nature are in sin and we're blind. What good has God given us that we have not abused, that we have not denied? Yes, man is blind until grace intervenes and we can't speak the glorious works of God because our hearts would not be in it. But what a picture of salvation is here as well. These blind men acknowledge their need, that Jesus was the son of David who could meet that need. They asked for mercy, not for what they deserved. They believed Jesus for healing, and it is very possible that they brought the mute man to Jesus also. What a picture of salvation in our need coming to Jesus Christ. Why, even their disobedience is a picture of the true convert to Jesus. And I point out to you, that these blind men could not believe on the basis of what they saw. You say, well, if only I could have seen the miracles. They didn't. No, indeed, that were impossible. They believed undoubtedly on the basis of testimony. And if you come to Jesus, it will be on the basis of testimony as well. You have the testimony of the whole Bible, don't you? You have the testimony of the faithful men who walked with Jesus, who saw him raised from the dead, the apostles, don't you? You have the testimony of those who were converted under the apostles' ministry, such as Timothy, don't you? You have the testimony of many who sit around you this morning, who by grace have been saved by faith in Jesus. And so these blind men must have heard how Jesus healed others, and then they must have thought, Maybe Jesus will do that for us too. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You have heard faithful testimony to who Jesus is and that he saves sinners. You have heard too. And will you also say, maybe when I come to him, he will do for me what he has done for others. Maybe he will save me too. I will go and I will ask him, do, do, do go, go, come, come, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and ask him to save you from your sins. Come and ask him to show you sovereign mercy and grace, and he will do it. He will do it. Come, come and ask, and then you will know it was all because his grace was in it from the first. You know the words of William Matson's hymn? The words are so wonderful and applicable to our text. Lord, I was blind. I could not see in thy marred visage any grace, but now the beauty of thy face as radiant vision dawns on me. Lord, I was deaf. I could not hear the thrilling music of thy voice, but now I hear thee and rejoice in all thine uttered words are dear. Lord, I was dumb. I could not speak the grace and glory of thy name. But now as touched with living flame, my lips thine eager praises wake. Lord, I was dead. 
I could not stir my lifeless soul to come to thee. But now, since thou hast quickened me, I rise from sin's dark sepulcher. Lord, thou hast made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, the dead to live, and lo, I break the chains of my captivity. May God do that in some soul this morning and bless the preaching of his word. Amen.